I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. If it is true that we are living through a time in which our collective imagination is increasingly devalued and undernourished, what might be the role of story in that? And how might story be part of the remedy? There are few better people to discuss this with than Sarah Woods. Sarah is a writer across all media, and her work has been produced by many companies, including the RSC, Hampstead and the BBC. Her opera, Wake, composed by Giorgio Battistelli, opens in March, as does her play Primary, about the UK state education system. Alongside many other projects, she is currently writing the musical of the play she co-wrote with the late Heathcote Williams, The Rough Tough Cream Puff Estate Agency, about squatting and DIY culture. Her play, Borderland, won the Tinniswood Award for Best Radio Drama Script of 2017. Sarah is a Wales green hero, and her work is about, as she told me, story, wherever it's most useful, across the board. I started by asking her the question I always ask in these interviews, but never as the first question. If you had been elected as the Prime Minister in the next election, and you had run on a programme of Make Britain Imaginative Again, what might be some of the things you'd announce in your first hundred days? I think I would look at, I would want to look at, for everybody to start looking at society and their lives as, as systems, so to, which is about three things, isn't it? Elements and interconnections and, um, and then the, the, the things that come out of that. And I suppose at the moment I feel that uh, we've got a problem with uh, the way that we're relating to each other. There's a lot of division. So that we're not then able, we're sort of then in, in little boxes, we're not able to see outside of those little boxes very often. And actually those um, interconnections between us um, are the ways in which we start to engage our imaginations beyond ourselves and start to see things more systemically rather than um, as sort of single issues. And single issues aren't really going to solve the problem. So I would, I would use systems theory which I think is essentially about using our imaginations because it's relational um, to start to resolve a lot of the problems that we've got. Um, And in doing that, obviously, I would use story to do that. So I would use story in, and I guess when I, in a lot of the work I do, I look at systems theory and story and how they're sort of the same thing. Stories are little systems. And so how how would you... How would you kind of uh, evaluate the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018? Um, what, how, what do I think it's like now? Yeah, what sort of what? Yeah, what sort of state is it in? Our imaginative health, did you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I guess there's a number of things happening on on different strata. I think there are really serious, dominant um, narratives that we've bought into. And I think we've bought into them for a number of reasons, not least because I think we've been reducing and reducing the sorts of ways we tell story. If you look at what's been happening on television and in film, we, there was this, all this idea of, you know, there are eight, only eight stories in the world. There are only three stories in the world. Maybe there's only one story. And we've sort of gone down this very reductive pathway, which I think is partly to do with capitalism trying to turn things into commodities and you know, find the answers to making money out of things. And we've stories really suffered, I think. And I think as a result, 
it's that's moved into you know how things hop across like viruses do so if you look at what's happened in film and television although we're starting to move out of that a little bit now you could say that's also affected our our media um in lots of ways alongside that we've had a sort of um an explosion of the sorts of ways in which we receive information um and i think one of the effects that's had one of the negative effects is that it's it's made us focus perhaps on things more superficially and not think as deeply as we might often and reflectively about things. So I think those two things together have meant that we can end up in quite um, small spaces in terms of not only the stories we're telling ourselves about who we are in the world, but the stories that we're receiving. Um, and I think there's a whole sort of topography of story which is about what we carry inside us and what's coming at us in various ways from the media, from friends and family, and also sort of from the past and future. And I think we're at a turning point now, it feels to me, because lots of people are starting to talk about the story. And I think people talking about story more is an indication that people are wanting to imaginatively engage more. So that was quite a, a long answer, but I think I think we're we're in, in, in unhelpful boxes that are dividing us from the possibility of the plurality of story and you know and essentially from each other and i one of the people that i interviewed was mosin hamid who wrote the reluctant fundamentalist mm. and he wrote this beautiful piece where he, he said that writers need a radical engagement with the future i wonder mm. what your thoughts were on that and what that might look like yeah i mean i guess i've been doing quite a lot about the future um in the past number of years and um I feel there's been an inability for us to engage productively, positively with our future. You know, my kids have grown up, and I imagine yours too, essentially surrounded by dystopias of one kind or another in a lot of the films and literature that they've engaged with. Um, and they're pretty sick of it, mine, um, although I don't think they fully realise the effect it's had on them. So I've actively tried to engage people, communities with... Um, the future and I think I've, what I've decided is that the, the dysp dystopias is something that Paul Mason said was that it's not that we're we keep you know we keep imagining the end of the world what we're rehearsing is the end of neoliberalism and so it's the end of a system that we're working within we operate within and we're and we don't know what comes next and I think there is a crisis of what comes next and I think it is part of my responsibility as an artist to engage with the future and help other people engage with it so a lot of the stuff i do actually is about the future and is about relationally trying to reconnect people to ideas of the future because everybody i talk to lots and lots of marginalized communities know that the future isn't going to be the same as the present is in in really radical ways hmm. but people don't know how to think about it there are there are no there are no places for people to really imagine what that might be like and to share stories about it to create those stories mm. and because when i when i was a kid people talked about the future all the time every comic mm. you got was all about the future yeah. and yeah. uh you know all the tv programs all about the future nobody really talks about the future very much anymore it's sort of we, we've decided it's all a bit too complex and scary and wouldn't mm. it be great if it was like the 1950s again yeah uh what yeah. happened what happened to the future um, 
I think it has things have got really, really complex. I think we had an idea that technology, you know, we'd sort of recreated the world, hadn't we, post Second World War, certainly in in our society, and we had, uh, you know, big technological dreams. I feel like uh, neoliberalism has put a stranglehold on the future. I think it put a stranglehold on uh, women's equality. You know, women were like, we want choices as to whether to go to work, and um, so then neoliberalism said. Haha, well, yes, you can have the choice to go to work. And when you go to work, we'll make it so that you can't stop going to work. And that now you need two people to work. So I think then the technology that was meant to set us free in different ways, again, has become, you know, in service to neoliberalism. Because what neoliberalism does is always look for where there's more surplus value, which is essentially, you know, if Marx would say in 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 labor, really, and, and obviously in the means of production. So I think if you see technology as part of the sort of the means of production in the widest sense and then us as you know uh, women anybody as ways of creating surplus value then you can see how we everything's channeled in into that sort of near near liberal grasp really so i feel that we're in that sort of a stranglehold and i think obviously neoliberalism is is faltering and uh, in its own several crises um, and has been for quite a long time and so it then becomes very hard for us to see beyond that Be- I think you know the way that w- economics is talked about and has been m- sort of mystified and turned into this strange uh, science that isn't a science means that we feel we, we we don't know how to understand it and so we don't know how to fix things and also it is complex now isn't it you know we're in a systemic crisis and I think that because stories are not told well and haven't been told well by probably you and I at times and certainly by, you know, the, the, the sort of green movement, that we've told some of the wrong stories and that hasn't helped people to um, engage with the biggest problems we've got. And I also think, just one final little thing, because I'm rambling on a lot, uh, I think that um, we, a lot of the ways we've tried to solve things is to make people responsible as individuals. So to say you need to turn your taps off, your lights off, you've got to recycle. And a lot of those things can be really, really de-energizing and isolating in a world that has become quite isolating. Mm-hmm. And I think what story can do and what imagination does is and is create the relational connections that can energize us so that we can reach up and start to deal with the biggest problems we have. Mm. You've written that stories offer a hugely effective way to catalyse communities to transcend the limits of our worldviews, if I can really read my handwriting, and rehearse new ways of being. Can you talk yeah. a bit about that? What, what, what? Can you tell us a bit about your work doing story work with communities? Any, any experiences that stand out, and and why why does it matter? So. I suppose I work with sort of this layers of narrative idea. So we are all as individuals, we all have our entrenched positions on all sorts of things, things that we might get really upset and defensive about that really matter to us. Um, And I suppose I always think it's important to start from where people are. So with all of my work, um, I'm doing a community opera at the moment, working with 200 um, people from Birmingham alongside a big orchestra and, um, and soloists. So it's, you know, starting from where those people are. So we started with um, their stories, and that's where the opera began. Um, with the anti-fracking campaign I did a couple of years ago, where we were looking to, uh, with a cooperative group, create a grassroots 
anti-fracking sort of campaign structure of, uh, of campaigners around the country, we started in those places with those people talking about their concern about their um, house insurance with earthquakes and the water quality for their grandchildren. So you start with those individual stories and then what I do is to sort of create a plural plurality of story. So, you know, get people to tell each other those stories and to understand that there are a number of different positions and even opposite positions. And I think if that sort of a di dialogue is really well held and whether that's um, presented in a drama or whether it's done as a live event with people present the idea is that you get people to realize there are a lot of different positions so you start to create a story system and within that story system you people start to see that there are also then a number of different solutions and it's very energizing for people to work together and talk together and from that i think you can start to create action and when people are feeling energized and positive you can also get them to see how it links to the biggest problems that we've got so that rough structure I use in lots and lots of different ways, um, either to create works of art that I then sort of will write and put on, um, or to do sort of more live campaigning events. And and I think it works, and it works because it's systemic, because it creates a sort of a, a hole for people to feel safe in, but also then to experiment in. And when you do that work, do you... What, what... It feels like you know, in many ways, for for many people in in their daily lives, it's it's like the the imagination is it's not that it disappears, but it's like it's a muscle that we if we work yeah. we can get a get a strong muscle, and if we don't, then it can kind of yeah. get a bit flaccid, and mm -hmm. uh, because it's unvalued and there's not much time for it in work or school or yeah. daily life, and we fill all those spaces up with smartphones. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what what um. What, what what do you see happen in people when you bring them into a space where their imagination is invoked or or respected or nurtured? I think it's a deeply human experience because actually we all tell ourselves stories all the time and people don't necessarily realise it because it's something we do innately. So, you know, we hold stories about, that we tell ourselves about ourselves about the people around us and we tell stories whether it's on social media or in real life about our experiences all the time um so and people tend to i think think that doing something that's about the imagination or creative is a bit scary and maybe not for them and you know so there, there can be a little bit of um nervousness around it but i think when people um or if you almost bypass that and just get people to start telling stories and they find themselves in it I think what people realise is that, you know, we all we all belong in that place and we all know that place. And yes, you know, I'm working with my imagination every day, so I've got a really, you know, hardwired sense of that in my brain. But it's there in everybody in all sorts of different little ways. And I think it's, um, I suppose I work a lot with values and values are obviously about people's um, emotional responses to things as well. So I think um, what you start to see is um, greater empathy. Um, there's um, that, uh, is it, what's her name? Barbara, I can't remember her surname, I can look it up. Her work, which is about the effect of positive emotion. Hendrickson. Yes, exactly. So that idea of people becoming more open, I certainly see people become more open. Um, and when you become more open, you're more open to relationships with others. You're more open to other people's 
perspectives. So I think there's often a shifting out of an entrenched point of view into something that's uh, much more open to change, I suppose. And in the imagine, using your imagination, and if you think of the rules of um, improvisation, uh, which are the sort of the most, the sort of freest way of working imaginatively, and again, which we do every day in conversation, most mm. of us, um, it's about within sort of confines being entirely free. So if you set people safe confines and enable them to, to be free, it's a hugely um, releasing experience. Um, and I think it's just, I almost don't tell people that that's what we're doing, we just do it because it is also innate. Mm. You know, if you if you start to fall in love with someone and you spend time with them, people are playful and open and we you know the same as we are often with our kids as long as they're, you know, not winding us up. But you know, I think it's there in all of us. I think it's deeply human and deeply natu- natural. I think by giving it names sometimes we estrange people from it. Mm-hmm. And as a creative <laughs> person yourself, how how do you how do you sustain that? what's your what's your process are, are there times when it when it feels kind of in, embattled or or under pressure or is it just a sort of a, a an endless spring <laughs> of, of uh, inspiration and flow it's a fairly endless spring i would say um i do i only do things i really really believe in i only my my little sort of pollyanna style mantra is you know is this the most useful thing i can do and if i if i say yes it is then i do it and i know i'm doing what's useful and that's sort of i know that if i'm not doing things that i feel are useful that's where i start to have some existential crisis fairly quickly so as long as i stay really true 